0: Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for another day that we can gather again in freedom to study your word. And again, Lord, we're thankful that you have not left us with subjective feelings to know you like the pagans, but yet you've given us the word once for all handed down to the saints. And so, Lord, we ask that you would open it up to us, open our minds to understand the things that are in there so that we may be conformed to the image of your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, so Bob, do you want to come on up and share with us what was going on down in Cincinnati?
1: Okay, good morning. It's great to be back to gather with the flock here. This last week, Diane and I spent almost a whole week in Cincinnati. Her brother and his wife and their two high school kids live there, and they have a lovely house in Cincinnati, and what a beautiful city that is. But I went down there to preach. There's a pastor who one of his members read CIC, and she's kind of an activist lady, and she arranged uh, to talk the pastor and to have have me come and speak and do a little seminar. Well, the first event down there was a fellowship meal in the home of this lady, very interesting home, a restored home from the 19th century down Hmm. in the oldest part of Cincinnati. It's just her husband did all the work. It's an unbelievable (coughs) home. Well, whatever the case, we had this fellowship meal, and then... The idea was that they could ask me any question they want. The pastor introduced me as a theologian, which I guess (laughs) I really am. Yeah. And I said, okay, you can ask anything, uh, any topic uh, about theology, and I'll do my best to answer your question. They asked nothing but about the gospel and the doctrines of grace. Wow. All they wanted to talk about is what is the true gospel, how does God convert people, No. Is the doctrine of election literally true? Because evidently recently the pastor himself came to see the significance of the gospel of grace. And so this is a charismatic church and one that, say, 10 years ago, I probably wouldn't have anything in common with. But at this point, what they're interested in is the gospel. Praise God. So that was a fantastic thing. Well, then Saturday morning, I was supposed to speak about postmodern theology, so I, I had my lecture that I've done before on a, in a PowerPoint, and I began to give the thing, and I realized that now one person <laughs> knew one thing. They, they had no clue what I was talking about. I could have been talking in a foreign language. The tongue. pastor himself had never heard of emergent or
0: postmodern. You should have told him you were talking in tongues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm a charismatic. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, anyhow, the. That was really mm-hmm.
1: interesting. And so that kind of, once I realized I was showing all these slides, quoting the, people like Doug Padgett and Brian McLaren mm-hmm. and what have you, and they explained what's wrong. They didn't know what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so then what I did Saturday morning was I, just, I decided I better just start telling stories because they're not going to get it. So I told mm-hmm. the story of my trip to Chicago to where I heard the emergent leaders mm-hmm. and what happened there and what I saw. And that was a little easier for them to be able to absorb. Mm -hmm. By the way, next Sunday morning in this class, Chris Rosebrew, who was there in Chicago with me, and he was also at Lake Forest, California with me when we met with Rick Warren, he's going to be here, and the two of us are going to speak in this class next Sunday about what we saw in Chicago. And it's mind-blowing. You can't believe what's going on there. Okay, so then Sunday, the topic was Sola Scriptura, and that was all from Scripture. So I, you've, you've probably seen it if you came to Faith at Risk or some of our conferences here. I started in the Old Testament, and I showed how God spoke to Moses, to the, to the patriarchs, uh, how you identify what a true prophet is yeah. and what's not a true prophet. And then I talked about the Mount of Transfiguration and how Jesus was the prophet that Moses predicted, and God himself said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Wow. Then Moses and Elijah disappear. And then I talked about how God used the apostles who were, as you taught recently in our church here, remember? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how, what is an apostle? And in one sense, an apostle speak for God. That was extremely well received. And a pastor yeah. told me I could come back and preach there any Okay. So it was kind of a miracle in a sense because I was in a church that, typically I wouldn't really have anything in common with, but because of their hunger for the gospel, we had no problem being in unity. And that tells me something that we've been saying for a long time. The true key to Christian unity is the gospel itself. The more gospel-centric Christians become, the more they come into unity. And if you can agree on the gospel, which, by the way, is no small task in this day and (laughs) age, but if you can agree on the gospel, then there's some of these other things, the urgency just kind of goes away because now we can, at least we can proclaim the gospel. So yeah. we had a wonderful time, and um, I watched Eric's sermons, and I don't know. I, I, if he keeps getting any better, I don't know if I'd no. dare go. <laughs> no, no. I'm not gonna, you're not going to want me to come no, back. No, no, it's
0: good to have the starting quarterback back, I tell you. <laughs> Every once in a while a starter throws an interception. Yeah, well, you know, I throw a few, too. So, um, You know, Bob, I was just thinking as he was talking about that, how important it is to build those categories regarding who actually speaks for God. Because that is one of the major issues that we're all confronting today. And praise God that this congregation was hungry to know those things because once people know who speaks for God and who doesn't, then you all of a sudden have your authority, namely the Scriptures, and then all we have to do is argue about what they actually say. So with that segue, let's get into what the Scriptures say. And if you recall last week, we talked about the section that we were in was all about the prayer that Paul had prayed over the Colossians because remember, he was thankful for what God had done for them, but he also wanted them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Okay. Now we had two slides that were left over, and I just want to summarize kind of the slides. And I want to do this because it, all these sections connect, as you're going to see. Oops, I got to get the right thing here. Let me show you the last slide we were on. If you recall, we talked about uh, Colossians 1:12b through 14, where it talked about the Father had qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, we already went through these things, and so I'm just going to reiterate, we talked about the inheritance of the saints, and that incorporates everything that we have to look forward to once we die. Namely, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord once you die, your body goes to the ground, your soul goes to be with the Lord until the rapture, and then your body and your soul are reunited. You will reign with Christ forever, or for a thousand years, first of all, in the millennial kingdom as he reigns from Israel. You're not going to be sitting around on a cloud strumming a harp doing meaningless things. It's going to be a meaningful existence, reigning with him. You're going to have tasks and chores, working for the Lord. But the curse of work will be removed so it will be profitable once again. And then after the thousand-year reign, of course, we know Satan sends his enemies against towards Jerusalem. And then God calls fire down. We're going to then have the new heavens and the new earth and we'll reign with God forever in the new Jerusalem. And this is exciting. This is all incorporated into the inheritance of the saints. And then you remember we talked about being rescued from the domain of darkness. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4 through four talks about The God of this age has blinded people to the truth of the gospel. So what do we need? What do we need to be able to perceive and receive the gospel? I like to use both of those phrases. I think they're biblical. They're not actually mentioned, but think about perceiving the gospel. In other words, perceiving your need. The blind don't perceive a need, do they? They don't even see a need. What the Holy Spirit does is, when he regenerates us is we perceive our need, We perceive who Jesus is, what the gospel is, and we're empowered also to receive it in the sense that we trust, we repent and trust. So I like to use the term perceive and receive. It's easy to remember. So God enables us to do that. So, of course, he gets all the glory for that. Then we talked about redemption. Remember, purchasing back which was lost. And we talked about this idea of ransom or redemption. There's a payment that has to be paid. you remember in Hebrews 9.14, We found that the payment isn't paid to Satan, even though we're taken from that kingdom or that domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. The payment that Jesus Christ pays is given to God. okay? and in fact himself, remember, Jesus is fully God, too, so that he's both the just and the justifier of the one who is faith in Christ. So let's all get that straight. The payment is never paid to Satan, it's paid to God. God's wrath is what we should fear, nothing that Satan can do to us, okay? And by the way, who runs hell? God does. You know, I think a lot of times people have a picture that Satan somehow is standing with a pitchfork and he's running hell. No, he doesn't. It's God's wrath that we're being saved from, okay? All right, so we talked a little bit about that. And then, I don't know if we got into this, the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to save this to the end of this section. Okay, in verse 20, we're going to talk about propitiation and expiation. And I want to talk a little bit further about these concepts because it gets into how did Jesus, what actually did he accomplish on the cross on our behalf? Now, here's what I want you to see. Do you see this phrase up here, his beloved son? This is important for this next section that we're going to be getting to because Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is a hymn. And the hymn is built on you understanding that who's being talked about is the beloved son. Okay, Now, let me give you the last slide of this section. Let me just summarize. This is a summary of the prayer that Paul gave on behalf of the Colossians. Paul prayed that the Colossians would walk in a worthy manner of the Lord who redeemed them. He also prayed that God would enable this to happen. And again, this brings about the doctrine, or should bring to mind the doctrine of compatibilism. You guys remember uh, Bob has talked about this numerous times, and so did Ryan, and I love this quote by Augustine. He says, Grant what thou commands, and command what thou wills, O Lord. And of course, what Augustine is saying there is, Lord, you command us what to do, but you have to enable us to do it. Because in and of ourselves, we're wretched sinners who can do nothing to please you. Okay? Now, of course, this led to controversy with a man named Pelagius and pelagius reacted against this and said no men have the ability in fact to please god on their own merits they have an innate ability to respond to the things that are commanded of god and of course that launched this controversy that ends up bringing uh when we bring it forward to today it's the controversy really between calvinism and arminianism okay it's the same battle is it grace or is it by works is it monergistic or is it synergistic so it's really the same battle but friends it is monergistic. God alone has to enable us to walk in a, a manner worthy of the Lord. Okay? All right. Now, let's get into the next verses. Verses 15 through 20. And I'm not proud of this next slide. It's just an ugly slide. Okay? <laughs> I have to admit it's, there's no title to it, but there's a reason. This is my form of an outline. And what I want you to see is just some of the grammatical constructions that tie the sections together. So, Again, verse 13, it talked about us being delivered to the kingdom of his beloved son. And again, verses 15 through 20 connect on to that. So let me show you why. Verse 15, it talks about two great concepts, namely that Jesus is the image of the invisible son and he's the firstborn of all creation. Okay. Now, let me just show you something. First of all, you're going to see a who is. When you read in your English Bible, it normally says, like, for instance, in the NASB, it'll say he is the image of the invisible God, um, you know, the firstborn of all creation. The he actually isn't there. Um, it's a relative pronoun. It's actually who. My point being is the only way you know who's being discussed is to look back to verse 13 and you say, oh, it's the beloved son. That's the connection. You see what I'm saying? So this here, this who is, Actually, in Greek, it's has esteen. Has is a relative pronoun. It's either which or who. And you don't know who it is until you look back in context. It's the beloved son. So he is the one who is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Now, in my opinion, what this section is all about is it answers the question, why does Jesus have this rank? I want you to think of firstborn as rank. He is of this preeminence. He is of the rank of the firstborn of God. And we'll talk more about that. Why does he have such a rank? And what you're going to see is what Paul is going to do is he's going to show that Christ is so superior. In fact, he's creator of all things, redeemer of all things. Why would the Colossians want to ever go after invoking angels? He is so much superior to the angels. So the angels are going to be listed as authorities, thrones, rulers and christ is reigning over them but the question that's answered in this section is why is jesus given such a rank let me show you how it's answered there's a because clause okay in verse 16 it's because he created all things whether visible or invisible whether on the heavens and the earth whether thrones uh, powers principalities whatever they are he created it Okay, so that's a because. Because of this. That's why he has this rank. That's how it's being answered. Okay, so that's verse 16. But then it continues into verse 17, and there's an interesting connection. There's an and. And he's the preexistent one. In other words, he's always existed, and he's the sustainer of all things. Not only is he eternal, the eternal creator, but he also maintains everything. Now, let me show you another interesting grammatical connection. Again, there's a verb, is. It's this, there's pronoun, he is. And again, this connects us up to the beloved son. So again, he is. Well, who is the he? Well, it connects on to verse 13. Jesus' name, by the way, is never mentioned in this section. Okay, So it, it connects back to the beloved son. So it's implied. Of course, we're talking about Jesus. And this is what's actually called an ascendetic clause. Now, what in the world is that? Well, an asyndeton is a zero set. And the reason why that's significant here is even though there's an and that connects this, the grammatical connection is the is. Notice in verse 15, there's an is. So it's a verb of being. You have another one in verse 17. Then also you have another one here in verse 18. He is. Okay? So now what is he also? Well, he's also the head he's head of the church, head of the body, and he's also the firstborn from the dead. And then we go back to another because clause. Okay? Because when it talks about he is being firstborn again, well why is he the firstborn? Well, it gives you another because. Well, because the fullness dwelt in him. Are you following kind of the way this is flowing? Now the fullness is who? Is you're going to find out it's God. Jesus is God. Okay? So that's why he's the firstborn. And finally, when we get to verse 20, there's this big crescendo that Jesus has reconciled all things. And that is the great answer. In fact, he's reconciled all things through the, the blood of the cross. Okay? That is the means by which he reconciled all things. So not only is he the creator of all things, but after things were wrecked by sin... He's the one who actually reconciles all things. So the answer to the question, why the firstborn, is given this glorious... So there, there's the question. It's given this glorious crescendo in that, well, Jesus reconciled all things through the cross. In in the middle, it's telling us all these things about him. And it's saying, in essence, why would you Colossians or any of us today settle for angels when we have Jesus? Right? Okay? So I hope that helps. Now, by the way, Bob had pointed out a structure on our Internet site. Is that correct? Of uh, Colossians? And it's probably better than what I came up with. How could we find that? It's on the reference Uh, links? Yes, if
1: you go to TwinCityFellowship.com, reference links. Remember, when we refer to something, we put it up there so people can see it. In there, there's a layout of the structure of this Christ hymn that I got from a pastor out in Escondido, California. I got permission to use and he got it from someone at uh, Westminster Sem- Seminary in that city. Yeah. And so that is on our reference links, and you can see how that Christ hymn is laid out in, in kind of a poetic way. It is actually. poetic, yeah. Yes, absolutely. it's poetic yeah, in the Greek. So take a look at that.
0: And by the way, you guys, anytime you look at a scholar about this section, everybody disagrees, okay, on the finer points. The major points, though, we all know that Christ is being shown above the throne's principalities and powers and that he is, in fact, God, creator of all things, redeemer of all things. Those are the major points that we want to, in fact, see. Now, let's get into the first verse. We see that the invisible God is, in fact, revealed. Colossians 1.15, Paul writes, he, of course, referring back to the beloved son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of And it literally, I put over, because it's it's better rendered over all creation. Okay? So he is, in fact, the firstborn over all creation. Now, let's talk about this idea of image. And image means two things. I want you to think of image in the sense of Genesis 1.26, that human beings are made in the image of God. Did somebody have the Genesis 1.26 passage, by the way? Did I hand that one out? I probably didn't. That's okay. Let's just summarize. Genesis 1.26 it says that we, in fact, are made in the image of God. Okay? So we are, in fact, if you want to think of it, as reflectors of his glory. Now, are we, in fact, little gods? No, we're not. We're not God in the sense, of, um, in the sense that the New Age people would consider us gods. We're not little deities, but we are those who reflect God's glory. Okay? We can worship him and we can love him. The animals can't. Okay, the animals don't care. My dog doesn't care about any of the great theological questions of the day. Okay, I've tried to teach him. I've been preaching. He's not (laughs) responding. Okay, so dogs, they don't care. All right, but humans do or humans should. Okay, so that's in one sense, the image of God. So in a real sense, you guys, Jesus, because he's fully God, fully man, he represents God in a way that you and I never could. You and I were supposed to be perfect representatives of who he was, and we failed miserably didn't we because we sinned well now Jesus is going to pick that up he's going to be the perfect adam okay but it's also because he in fact is god all right the other passages second kings 11:18 and hosea 13:2 this has to do with actually the term icon okay in other words an actual representation of deity and that's what jesus is because in fact why he is god okay that's what we're going to see he is god so but think about it he's representing God in a way that we never could as perfect man, but he, in fact, is also perfectly God himself. All right? Now, let's move on to talk about this concept of the firstborn. And I know I had somebody uh, I gave out. Oh, in fact, it was Robert. Reverend Robert is. If you will read Exodus 4.22, and we'll talk a little bit about this idea of firstborn. Exodus 4.22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. There, that's great. So Israel is God's firstborn. Now, does that mean Israel was the very first people ever to be born on this planet? No, it doesn't mean that. What's being referenced is the preeminence of Israel. So the primary meaning of firstborn in the scripture is preeminence. It has to do with rank. Okay, does that make sense? It has to do with rank, not necessarily chronological order of your birth. All right, that's a huge concept. Now, let me explain this idea firstborn so you kind of can experience or at least think about the significance of what this term meant. And I want to talk about Jacob and Esau's calling in Exodus 25 or Genesis 25, 23 through 24. If you recall in that passage, it was prophesied that the older, namely Esau, would serve the younger. Do you guys remember that? And what is that really telling us? It's telling us that although the normal affairs of man is that the firstborn, the first person out of the chute, so to speak, out of the womb, is the, is the firstborn, right? And they have the advantages of rank, in this case, God's election stands, so therefore, Jacob is actually going to be the firstborn. So this section is all about God's election. And this is bringing about the seed that was promised in Genesis 3.15, namely the seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head. We see the seed is given to Abraham. It's going to go through Isaac and then Jacob. And, and that's where we are here. Okay, So it's all about election. But also I want you to think about what happens in this story is that Jacob apparently is in a tent or something. And Esau is out in the field. Remember, he is the hunter. Remember, his name literally means red. And he comes in and he's famished. And because he's famished, he's so hungry, he's willing to sell, it says, his birthright. Now, what was his birthright that he's willing to sell just because he's hungry? Well, the firstborn in the ancient Near East, they were priests on behalf of their family. Okay, so if you were the firstborn, you were the one who was a mediator, who actually would be the one responsible for being a mediator between God and man. So what was Esau willing to give up in order just to get a bowl of red soup? He was willing to give up his status as a mediator between God and man. He gave it up for a bowl of beans. Okay, now it's elect that this would happen. Jacob was called before anything they had done. But doesn't that tell you something about the mindset of Esau? And I think about it. Let me just give you a little mini application. So many times in my own life when I have sinned, here I'm called, according to 1 Peter 2.5, I'm part of the royal priesthood and so are you. If you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, you're a royal priest. You're a mediator in a sense, a small sense, between God and man. In other words, because you're representing Jesus Christ. right? You're pointing people to him. He's the one mediator between God and man. But do you see what I'm saying? You're a royal priest. And how often it is, I thought about when I sin, I'm really, in a sense, giving up my birthright, often for a bowl of beans too. Okay, I look at the stuff that I'll sin and I'll go after, and it's ridiculous what I'll sell my birthright for. The good news is this, though. Our birthright is never lost. Why? Because God keeps us in his covenant love, his cassette. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Okay, so even though we sin, even when we're faithless, he is faithful. And so I remain a a royal priest, a, a believer in him, because he keeps me. Okay, but that should tell us the story, I think, a little bit about the seriousness of sin. And in fact, what we're giving up when we engage in sin. So that's what the birthright is about. That's what it means to be the firstborn. And Esau gave it up, and Jacob received it. Yet it was the foreordained plan of God that it would happen. Okay, So that's all tied into the idea of the firstborn. It has to do with preeminence. Let me show you Psalm 89. In this Psalm here, 89, 27 through 29, David is recounting the covenant that God had established with him in Second Samuel 7. So listen to what David writes. He says, This is actually, you know, he's saying, thus saith the Lord. So this is the Lord speaking. He says, I also shall make him my firstborn. Okay, now this is talking about the seed that will come from David. He will be his firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So again, the highest of the kings, that would be a reference to his rank, would it not? And again, that ties into our understanding of the firstborn. It doesn't have to do with chronology of coming out of the shoot. It has to do with preeminence. Okay? Now, he continues. He says, My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him, so I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. Notice where it says loving kindness. Literally, that term is keseth. Okay? And that term has to do with God's covenant love. That is the covenant love that he bestows upon the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by faith in Jesus Christ, we are grafted in so that God bestows this covenant love upon us. It is a covenant love that never fails. It never fails ever. It it never goes away. Why? Because we can't lose our salvation. We will end up persevering to the end. Okay, it's that kind of...
2: I was just going to make a point. And when it comes to compatibilism, yeah. the Jacob-Esau story, and even what we're talking about now, yep. if you look at it from a human perspective, Esau lost his birthright because he decided that I'm not going to, I don't care about this and I'm going to have this porridge yeah. no matter what. Right. And from our human perspective, it was Esau's choice that determined that. But from God's perspective, because in this case we know his will, it was revealed in a prophecy, so we mm-hmm. are certain about it. That from God's perspective, it was decided and he did choose. But as a human, we don't see. And in the same type of thing as my personal salvation, from God's perspective, those who he has chosen, they are secure because he has chosen them. But as I walk through life and I look at my children and I look at myself and Mm -hmm. I I consider the things that I'm to choose, I have the perspective of Esau. And I have the perspective of choice and I have the perspective of my will. And as I live, it's a viewpoint of what I'm doing and what I'm I'm choosing. But from God's perspective, it's the same thing. So the compatibilism is really a perspective issue. We should be concerned. We should choose. We should do everything we can in our power to pursue what God has said knowing that he has decreed and he has elected, and from his perspective, it's different than ours. Yeah. And we never know who's elect until right. the chips are cast in, if people die, we're going to be in front of the throne. But he does.
0: That's right. There's no ease on anybody's forehead. So you're right. Yeah. Well said. Yeah, the yeah. other
1: thing about this is there's commentary on, on what Eric's talking about in Hebrews 12. Uh-huh. In Hebrews 12, it talks about make sure among you that there is no immoral or godless person, and the word there translated godless is secular, mm. okay? Secular. And the reason <laughs> it means that is that Esau wasn't just rejecting his place in that particular family. He was rejecting the importance mm. of the promises to the patriarchs, oh, Wow. okay, yeah. that God was going to have a descendant that would come, that would be uh, from Abraham, Isaac, and then later Jacob, Hmm. Esau rejected that. And and so the warning to us is that we don't take the covenant promises of God so lightly Hmm. that we sell them for some secular thing. And I I Hmm. did a message on that once called the selling of our evangelical birthright.
0: Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, Yeah. that we sold Hmm. out,
1: that we sold out the blood atonement, we sold out everything that's, we have that nobody else could could have because it comes from God through the Bible. And when we go out as a church to try to be popular in the world, and we try to have the best rock stars and the best entertainment (laughs) and the best everything, we're just becoming secular and we're selling our birthright. And so it's really bad.
0: Amen. That's really great. You guys, let me give you a story from the Old Testament about this cassette, this covenant love. In 2 Samuel, as you guys were talking, it brought to mind 2 Samuel 9. There's a story about a man named Mephibosheth. And if you recall, David had made a covenant with Jonathan, and he remembers the covenant. After Jonathan and Saul are killed, and they're hung up on Mount Gilboa, Jonathan, or, uh, David rather, ends up becoming the king, right? He ends up becoming the king of all of Israel, and he's remembering his covenant. And it's literally Kasset. It's his covenant love that he had for Jonathan. And this, in fact, I think is a picture of what God does for us. So here Mephibosheth is actually a cripple. okay? And he comes from a town called Lothabar, or literally Lothavar, okay? And in Hebrew it means no pasture. Or you could literally say it means nowhere. So you've got a cripple, Mephibosheth, or Mephibosheth. You've got a nobody from nowhere. That's the idea. And he's called to the king's table. He's just crippled. He can't do a thing. He can't get there if he wanted to. And he thinks that King David is going to kill him. He's going to off him. Why? Because he would be a contender to the throne. Okay? But yet what David says is forever you will eat at the king's table because he remembered his chesed, his covenant love. Okay? And what's the response of Mephibosheth? He says, who am I but a dead dog? to eat at the king's table. Friends, that's the response we should have when we eat at the king's table. Again, Bob is talking about the Mishnah. There's a day that's coming where we will eat at the king's table and we too are nothing but cripples. We're a bunch of nobodies from nowhere who couldn't get to the king's table unless he bestowed his cassette, his covenant love upon us. So we too should have the reaction, who am I but a dead dog to sit at the king's table? Friends, that's cassette. Okay, that's what it's all about. Okay, one other t- thing I wanted to talk about. Oh, uh, descendants. Oftentimes you'll see in your English Bibles the term descendants, but it's often ch- in the Hebrew, it's Zerah, which is this collective noun for seed. So literally, say it over. So, say, so I will establish his seed forever. Now here we have a synonymous parallelism because it's forever. And then he says, and his throne as the days of heaven. Well, what are the days of heaven? Well, they're forever. So it's just a different way of saying forever. So the descendants, this idea of seed is what brings us back to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman okay, will one day crush the serpent's head. Friends, really the Old Testament is all about an unveiling of who that seed would be, where he would come from, and what he would do. He's going to come from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob. So wrapped into this term seed is the idea. Remember we talked about the one and the many. The primary reference of the seed is Christ. Okay, it's Jesus because it's a singular, or it's a collective noun, but in the original promise in Genesis 3.15, it says he will crush the serpent's head. It's a singular masculine pronoun, who. Now remember in, who, in, in Hebrew, who is he and he is she. <laughs> so talk about being confused. I was trying to remember my Hebrew pronouns, and I had to remember for my test, well, he is she and who is he. And it sounded like I was doing the who's on first thing all by myself. Remember that? Abbott and Costello? Who's on first? That's right. You know, I was all confused. So anyway, but the point is, is that there's a singular masculine pronoun, who, in Genesis three fifteen, where it says, He will crush the serpent's head. So therefore, the seed first and foremost is a male. It is the Christ. And wrapped into his promises are the many, namely Israel. All those who are true Israel, who trust in Jesus Christ, into the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, and then of course, national Israel, as they are in fact, brought to repentance and faith. Okay, so that's all wrapped into here. But the big picture that I want you to see is that the firstborn is a term of preeminence. Jesus is the preeminent one, and therefore, the rest of this section is going to ask, answer the question, why. Why is he regarded as the firstborn of all creation? Well, we'll find out. Because first of all, Jesus created everything. It says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and is invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Okay, now let's start off with that by. There's, there's three propositions here that I have highlighted or bolded there in black. And the first one is by. Now, many scholars for years have understood that to be a preposition of means. In other words, it's the idea that Jesus, it was by him that all things were created. Now, that is stated here, but it's not through this preposition. What would be? It would be better rendered, and I would cite F.F. F. Bruce on this, and I think he nails it. Typically, when you see this type of preposition, it's a preposition of sphere namely that all things were created in the sphere of jesus in other words it was for him the best way i can phrase it is think about this we all everything you see all of creation is jesus playground and when the the spirit hovered over the waters and the father was involved so in other words you have the holy spirit and you have the father involved with creation as well they're all doing it in the sphere of christ it's his playground Okay, because at the end of the day, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, right? And so it's in his playground. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't create everything, because when we get to the through, that is a preposition dia, and it literally means that Jesus is the agent who actually creates it all. Okay, so he is the agent that's actually creating everything. He created it all. Okay, so he did it, but it gets even better because it says, and it's also for him. In other words, the purpose of it was to give him glory. So, in other words, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they all created in Jesus' playground. Jesus is the one who created it all, and it's for him. That's the purpose. It's for his glory. Okay, so you guys, we learn a lot of theology just from understanding our prepositions. Let me show you a page from Daniel Wallace's New Testament Greek, and what he talks about is agency in the New Testament. Now, what I want to show you, don't bog down in the details, but I just want you to see the precision by which the New Testament typically uses its prepositions. Let me just show you a few of them. Agency, by the way, what I'm referring to here is agency. You have three different types of agency. You have ultimate agent, you have an intermediate agent, and you have impersonal means. Okay, so typically, when you're dealing with the ultimate agent, you're referring to God. God is the one, the Father, namely. He's ordained all things. Okay, he's ordained all things. And there's these prepositions that are typically used with a genitive construction. Uh, hupa, apo, and para. Okay? Now, I'm going to give you an example of this, where this is used, so you understand what I'm talking about, because we've got to put some meat on this. Uh, Luke one twenty six. Who had Luke 1.26? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's do the question first, then I'll come back. Well, and... I...
3: I just wanted to bring up the Genesis 1.26. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> that is the first time in the whole process of creation that God uses the word us. Mm. God said, let us make man in our image, not my but our image. So there's the Lord Jesus being mentioned and the Holy Spirit, the three, right there at the very beginning.
0: Good catch. I love that. Um, In fact, I've been on the fence as to whether sometimes scholars have used the us as this royal we. I disagree with them. John Salehammer, if anybody has the Gable Line commentary series, there's a man named John Salehammer who does a whole, um, he kind of expounds that passage, and he really proves that that is really a reference to the Godhead. And I think it is a reference to the Trinity. So good catch. That is great. Exactly. So the whole Trinity is involved uh, in this process. Yeah, exactly. From the very beginning. Well said. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now we'll get to Luke 126, and this is going to show us an example of an ultimate agent. So go ahead and read that.
3: Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth.
0: <laughs> read, read it slowly one more time. Okay. Because <laughs> I missed it myself. <laughs>
3: Luke one twenty six. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a sent city. Sent by God.
0: Okay, there it is. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. So the by there, um, do you notice how that's one of our choices? of this ultimate agent, that would, and I forgot what it was. It might have been hoopa or apo or para. I don't remember what it is, but it's one of those prepositions there. And the idea there is, how is this angel sent? Who's the ultimate agent? Well, God. God sent them. So there's an example. Okay? Now, by the way, these rules, they really hold up in all the books of the New Testament except Jude and Peter. Why? Because Peter and Jude didn't know Greek real well. OK, that doesn't matter that 're still inspired, but they just didn't hold to these same rules, typically. OK, but otherwise throughout the rest of the books, you're if you know these rules, they're golden. OK, now let me give you the next one that talks about impersonal means. OK, here we have Hebrews
3: 9:22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood
0: there. So there's that whiff. OK, and. I think that would be an N in uh, in Greek. That would be the preposition. So there is the impersonal means by which our salvation is accomplished. Okay? It's by... say, Say it one more time real slowly again. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. With blood or by blood. Okay, good. All right, that's perfect. So that would be the impersonal means by which God accomplishes the salvation. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this idea of what it means. What do we mean by the blood? We'll talk more about that a little bit later. So the one thing you want to see here, though, is that Jesus created everything. And notice what I have highlighted in red, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, that is shorthand for talking about the angelic realm. So what Paul is saying, see, if you were in Colossae at the time and you're a Christian who's faltering with worshiping these angels you would understand the terms thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, because that's what you are tempted to invoke for protection against the stoichia. Okay? Does that make sense? So what Jesus or what's being stated about Jesus is that he is superior to those things. Okay? He created those things. So why on earth would anybody invoke what was created and forget about the one who created them? That's the idea here. Okay? And that is central to this section. That's what Paul wants his Colossian listeners to understand. Okay. Now next we see Jesus sustains all things. Verse 17, it says he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. The before there literally means that in the temporal sense, in the, in the sense of time, Jesus is before all things. Okay. So he existed from all of eternity. That's the idea that's present right here. now, You know, what's interesting about this whole section, let me just mention this real quick, in verses 15 through 20, when I was preparing an apologetics lecture, um, in our apologetics section, I looked at the New World Translation that the Jehovah Witnesses have. Do you know what they actually insert? They put in the term other. So when it says that he created all things, the New World Translation of the Jehovah Witnesses, remember, they don't believe that Jesus is God, they insert other. So for here, in verse 17, it would say, he is before all, and then they would insert other things. Other is nowhere in the text. Why do they have to insert other in the text? Because they know what's being implied is that Jesus is God. Okay, because he existed before all other things, all right? So that's why they have to do that. And, and So that's a good debating point. And, and Larry is an expert in debating with Jehovah's Witnesses. So do you ever use that yourself, Larry? You do? Good. That's an excellent one, so... Um, anyway, moving on, let me talk about this idea of Yahweh. Jesus, of course, remember in um, John 8:58, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. Of course, he's referencing himself back to the term that God uses at the burning bush account back in Exodus. Or remember Moses says, Who should I say that sent me to the Israelites? And God says, Tell them, I am. The literal term in Hebrew is a form of what's called a yictol verb. It literally means it's a, what's called an imperfect So it would be the idea that I will be who I will be who I will be. okay? And the idea there is that, well, he always is. And what I want you to think about, I think I have the next point up here about this. Oh, yeah, well, this is just a side point. Arius, by the way, the Jehovah Witnesses, they're just rehashing the Arian heresy. Arius said that there was a time when he was not. This passage in Colossians 1.17 and also what Jesus says in John 8.58 refutes that. No, he always was. Oh, uh, Keith. I do think you brought
2: that up. This passage very early in church history, this concept that Paul's using in this hymn is a pivotal thing for all of Christians of how we understand God because it was a pivotal passage back in the first couple of centuries in establishing wow. the doctrine of Christ and who he was, wow. who he is, and what he does. So Paul's explanation to the Colossians ends up being the explanation... That's used for all of church history since that time.
0: Amen. That's right. And yeah, and that's why a lot of scholars do believe that Paul is actually borrowing. This is a hymn that was already existed prior to Paul. So Paul is literally under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is completely inspired. Paul is literally borrowing this hymn. So this hymn more than likely predated Paul. And it was used because the early Christians knew that in fact Christ was these things. He was the creator. He was the redeemer of all things. Yeah, good point. The other thing I want to mention about this idea of Jesus existing before all things is this. It's logically necessary that something is eternal. Okay? So isn't it interesting, my friends, that when the Bible states that God is eternal, that corresponds to what we know about logic. Because if there ever was a time that there was nothing, there would be nothing now. Because think about if there was if there was ever nothing nothing can't you know do anything right isn't it simple so what's interesting is this very law of uh, the law of causality the law of non-contradiction actually predicts that there must be something eternal the big debate in our day and age is what is eternal is it the creation or is it in fact there a creator now why can't the creation be in fact eternal because of the second law of thermodynamics, which says in a closed system, this is a law of science, in a closed system, all energy is going from a higher ordered state or organized state to a lesser organized state. In other words, we're losing heat. It's, it's the death of the universe by heat decay. Okay? The law of entropy states that one day all the stars will burn out, the sun will burn out. And so what we're left with is the universe cannot be eternal well, then we need something eternal. Oh gosh, there's a God that's revealed in the scriptures. Now, the absurdity of our day and age comes about, and I better put this on the screen, comes about when people talk about this idea of chance. I actually was debating a man named P.Z. Myers informally at an atheist debate downtown Minneapolis, and he is, in fact, in this movie. Anybody seen Expelled with Ben Stein? He's actually in that movie, okay? And I got into an informal debate, and I put him into a dilemma. And this is a dilemma that I recommend when you're debating with atheists. If an atheist denies the existence of God, they're going to have to do one of two things, to accept two things. They're either going to have to accept that the universe is eternal or that the universe could self-create itself. Does that make sense? So either the universe is eternal or it can self-create itself. Well, the second law of thermodynamics says that the universe is not eternal, right? Right? And we know that the law of logic, namely the law of causality and the law of non-contradiction says that nothing can self-create itself because how can something not exist and then exist to put itself into existence? Does that make sense? So here's what what is the atheist left with? If they deny a creator, they're either going to have to deny a law of science, namely the second law of thermodynamics, or they're going to have to deny a law of logic. So which will they be? Will they be unscientific or irrational? That's what's left for them. And this P.Z. Myers, he got red in the face because all of his atheist friends were standing around him. And you know what he said? He said that by chance it was created. It it came about by chance. Well, friends, what is he doing? He's ascribing causal power to something that doesn't exist. Has anybody in here ever seen a piece of chance? No, no. In fact, when you flip a coin, let's say you flip a coin, And you say, what are the chances it's going to be heads or tails? You say 50-50. Okay, that's a fine way of using chance because chance is a word that describes mathematical probability. But what is the way that the atheists are using chance? They're using chance as a force. What actually flips the coin? Is it chance? Is chance a force that can flip the coin? No, my thumb is flipping the coin. Chance is merely a word describing the mathematical probability of it coming heads or tails. OK, see, you see, they've equivocated on the term chance. They've changed the definition. So now chance is a force. What they are dressed, you know what they're talking about? They're talking about magic. What, that's what they're saying. They're saying nothing can do something. And this counts as intellectual thought in academia today. Isn't that sad? Thousands of kids are duped by this idea that nothing can do something. And they think, wow, this is because it's dressed up in the term chance. Okay, does that all make sense? All of this logic, all of these thoughts flows back to a God who always exists, who always will exist, who always has existed. There must be something eternal if anything is to exist now. And we find from the scriptures that it must be God. We know from logic and science that it can't be the creation. Okay, Patrick.
3: What would you say to someone who objected and said, ah, well, that's
2: just
0: a bunch of philosophy and you're just kind of confusing the issue. We don't really know any of that. That's just a bunch of philosophy, worldly philosophy. Yeah, you know what? I would say, first of all, that's a, that's a good challenge. And but let me just say what's usually behind that is this idea. Are you talking about like a Christian who would bring that up? Or I think either, either Christians or yeah. non theists or, or random secular yeah, people. Yeah, oftentimes might say that. from the Christian perspective, a lot of people say, well, why are you imposing logic or philosophy upon the biblical text? What's often behind that is a misunderstanding that, realize, just as Isaac Newton, he didn't. in actually create the laws of logic, like the law of gravity, what did he actually do? He merely discovered what God had created all along. Friends, that's exactly what philosophy and logic is. We're, by using sound thinking, we are merely using what God had created, namely logic. Nothing can, va- inv- nothing can go against the law of non-contradiction. Why? Because God has created the universe whereby it's governed by that. Okay, So the law of non-contradiction, if A, then not non-A at the same time, the same relationship. Without the law of non-contradiction, realize if you try to, or let's say it this way, if you try to deny the law of non-contradiction, you have to use the law of non-contradiction to deny it. Now, Norman Geisler, one of my favorite teachers, often said, if you have to accept something to be true in order to deny it, you don't have a very good case, do you? (laughs) I thought that was very witty. Yeah, Keith.
2: If I look at the law of causality, yeah. and what, if, what I understand you're saying is that because the universe exists, something had to cause it. That's right. Yeah. I think that the argument itself isn't as strong as it could be because I could apply the same thing to God. If God exists, then something had to cause him. So it's ultimately, in yeah. either case, you have to say... God said he was there from the beginning, therefore I believe it and go forward from there. Yeah, but, my
0: argument, yeah, let me just stop you right there. My argument's a little bit different. My argument, what I'm really saying is something's eternal, okay? Something has to be eternal. It's
2: either universe or God. It's
0: either universe or God, okay? So you're right. God, maybe it's, God isn't, he's just made up in the minds of men, right? Maybe he's created. But the point is, is we know from logic and from science that the universe cannot be eternal, and, and the other, other, or the other or i would say i should it. say it this way we know from science that the universe cannot be eternal from general revelation because the second law of thermodynamics now somebody may say well the, the second law of thermodynamics may not hold well then the burden of proof is on them right because that's an established law of science well, we're saying it doesn't hold for spirits well <laughs> yeah what i'm just saying though is is for the 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 universe that we see that exists that's they would hold yeah
2: the way to just clear up keith's objection
0: is to say anything that comes to exist must have a cause that's right god never came to exist he always existed yep let's just boil it keep it really simple something must be eternal it's either god or it's the universe okay can it be the universe in law, in light of the law of the second law of thermodynamics no it can't be the universe Okay? It cannot be. In fact, anybody gets a chance to read Robert Jastrow's book called God and the Astronomers? He lays out five. Remember, this is the guy who was the head of Goddard's NASA Space Institute. He lays out five strands of evidence why the universe cannot be eternal. One of the most powerful ones was people, these scientists who were, in fact, astronomers, they knew that if, in fact, the universe was created, they, in fact, should find um, a radiation echo, a background radiation Echo on this spectrograph that they can look at light through, and they found that. And that's a huge piece of evidence that points to the fact that the universe cannot be eternal, okay? So much so that some of the scientists were trying to come up with absurd theories, namely that hydrogen atoms were coming into existence by chance. Uh, Sir Frederick Hoyle came up with that theory. Well, that's just a form of spontaneous generation, nothing doing something. That's absurd. Why? Because they didn't like the implications that, in fact... The universe is not eternal. Okay? All right. Now, Glenn.
3: Beware of academia. John MacArthur in his new book, in the preface, takes a whole page. It shows the seven definitions
0: of academia. It's, yeah. it's a worth, worthless world. They live in a radical world of uh, speculation. Yeah. And they invent things as they go. It's not profitable. Yeah. And they just screw everything up. And they don't <laughs> know where the real world is. We're not talking about true intellectuals or research scientists.
1: We're talking about academia where it's a radical speculations all the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, let me, re- let me just react to that real quickly. Glenn, I-, I agree that the academia that we see today is in big trouble. The reason why they're in big trouble is because they have really bad ideas. They have faulty presuppositions, okay? Um, it counts as intellectual. Um, you're counted an intellectual if you believe that the universe self-created itself, which is an absurdity. But one of the problems is, is it's not academia as such. It's the problem that they're not being good academics. Do you see what I'm saying? Because a good academic thinks well. Okay? In other words, what I want to do is I want to have, have us not say that academics is bad because we as Christians should be academic. And I know you're not saying that, but let's just make clear. Well, what I'm saying is that God calls us to have good thought. Okay, And the problem with the atheists and the problem with the academics is that their minds are defiled, as we see in the book of Titus, and so they're not thinking well. Okay, So they're making logical errors. When's the last time anybody has talked to a kid in the public school that was taught the different laws of logic? Well, why aren't they? Is it perhaps because if they knew the laws of logic, they would know it's a bunch of hogwash that the universe could self-create itself? Perhaps. Practical experience. you got to get out Yeah. Oh, oh, I agree. Yeah, no, I agree. Right. But what I'm, what I'm saying is, originally, academia was governed by the church. In other words, the, the Cadillac of the sciences was theology, and philosophy was the handmaiden to it. And what we've allowed uh, academia to become is something secular and divorced from really truth. And uh, so now it's just a matter of opinion. I heard my, uh, my niece, she was arguing about whether or not two different religions should have identical uh, access to different spaces. And they'll debate that all day long. In other words, the Muslims wanted this, this uh, room and the Christians wanted this room and they're all arguing about it. But you know what's never argued on the campus is which religion is true. You know what I mean? Why? Well, because we can't talk about things like that. They don't want to talk about issues of truth. Islam says Jesus was not crucified. Christianity says he was. Islam was written by a man 620 years after the fact in the middle of the desert. Christianity was written by the eyewitnesses, and, by, and it's corroborated by Flavius Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny, the younger secular historian. So my point is, is academia isn't searching for truth to know God. What they are is they're creating people really in the image of this world. And that's the problem. We have to get academia back centered under God. So the problem isn't academics. The problem is, is what we have allowed academia to become, in my opinion. Yeah. So I'm sorry I'm getting us off track here. Yeah, go ahead.
3: What we've got here is a discussion uh, with logic and faith. And we refer to our faith as the Christian faith, not the Christian logic. Now, it's true that God does say, like in Isaiah, come now, let us reason together. Yeah. So reasoning is good, yeah. but I thought of the verse in, um, well, two references, one in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Yeah, you're familiar yeah, think, with that yeah. one, yeah. Um, and then also in Hebrews, the chapter on faith, yeah. where it says, by faith, not by logic, yeah. we understand, by faith we understand, not by thinking it through, but by believing what God has said in his word, his eternal yeah. word that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen are not made by the things which are visible.
0: Yeah, yeah so let's just talk about that. We're making a category error there where what's being discussed in, in Hebrews is this idea of seen versus unseen. It's not logic versus illogical. We're never called to irrationality in the scriptures. Um, I would say, like for instance, First Peter 1, we're called to knowledge three times. The term typically for knowledge is gnosko, for Jesus says, you, you don't know the Father, but I know him. He uses Gnosko for the Pharisees, and he uses Oida. Now, there's some semantic overlap, but typically Gnosko has to do with study from the Scriptures. He's rebuking the Pharisees. You don't know him because you don't study the Scriptures, but I know him. And Oida, typically, there's a slight nuance that it means I know him intuitively. But the point being is we're called to knowledge of the Scriptures, and that only happens rationally. Okay, so we're not called to an irrational faith. For instance, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, he says there's no evidence for what we believe. We merely believe. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Right, but we still understand these things. We don't mystically perceive them. Does that make sense? In other words, you know, well, let me just ask you, how did you, um, hold on just one second, how did you know what you said? You read it from the book of Hebrews, right? Okay, but when you read that, your mind is doing cognitive things. You're not seeing it mystically. Do you see what I'm saying? Part of saving faith has to do with knowledge, though. And what I'm saying is, saving faith is more than just mere knowledge, but it's not less than that. Okay? You know, we're out of time, but let me just say this. The saving faith has to do with three parts, and I think we can prove these through the Scriptures. First of all, it's notitia, knowledge, it's a census, and it's fiducia. Having the facts about who Jesus is and what he has done is essential to the gospel. We, we must know those things. Then you and I assent to him saying, yes, these things in fact I believe to be true but we're still not saved yet. That's right. And that's why even like for instance in Titus it talks about their minds being defiled. Why are their minds defiled? They're not thinking correctly. So sin radically affects even the way people think. So not even thinking well, so saving faith is never divorced from logic or right reason. It never is in the scriptures that 's why we 're called to knowledge three times in one chapter um, by Peter. yeah, yeah we 're out of time. okay, good discussion though yeah, thanks you guys that 's right i don 't have enough faith to be an atheist that 's right. Good discussion though, you guys.